Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at Work, with two great interviews today. One, Mitch Horowitz and the book that he has uh, edited and brought to life again, The Game of Life and How to Play It, by Florence Scovel Shin, 1925, written and fresh and lively today as Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill in 37, another one of those books that Torture Penguin brings out, and you will hear from Mitch Horowitz about the genre and about Ms. Shin. And at the second part of the hour, we have a thoroughly modern book on how to work with troublesome co-workers and managing your boss, entitled Working for You Is It Working for Me? Catherine Crowley and Kathy Elster share their thoughts about how to be a better employee and work with difficult people. Amen. Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at Work, all about management, leadership, and employment in the workplace, and today, happily so, talking with Mitchell Horowitz, who is the editor-in-chief of Torture Penguin, and he can explain that, as he will, and he is the compiler, I'll call him that, he can redefine, uh, of a series of books, one of which is The Game of Life and How to Play It by Florence Scovel Shin. Reminded me when I saw it of Napoleon Hill and Think and Grow Rich, and it was only then that I realized that like Mr. Hill, Ms. Shin is no longer with us, and Mitch Horowitz is the closest I could find to Florence Scovel Shin. Uh, Mitch, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. What is, let, let's start out with, uh, since this is different anyway, why don't we start out with the imprint? What, what is Torture Penguin and what is produced, if you will, uh, un, under that name? Torture Penguin is a pioneering New Age imprint. It dates back to the 1960s. Its founder uh, lives in Los Angeles. It was bought by Penguin about 15 years ago. I've been with the company for about 12 years. We publish a very wide range of works in practical spirituality. We publish folks like Napoleon Hill, Dale Carnegie, Florence Scovel Shin, who we'll talk about today. Our Spirituality, books, perhaps with a small s. Spirituality with a small s, not necessarily attached to any particular uh, doctrine or congregation, but published with the belief uh, that spiritual ideas or the belief in some kind of a higher power can help people to find practical answers and a way forward in their lives and in their workplaces. And Napoleon Hill, which is, um, as, and, and, and as you might explain, uh, these books are now in the, if you will, the public domain. Many of them are, yes. And so they are picked up by publishers and um, with a hope of representing them the way they were with maybe a, a new forward or a new introduction or not. They find their way back into the public, uh, which very often, as you have pointed out, has some memory about Napoleon Hill and Florence Shin. Absolutely. You know, for, for a generation, uh, many of these pioneering self-help writers, Dale Carnegie and Napoleon Hill among them, they got kind of dusty. The old editions weren't paid much attention to. They were treated like staples on a backlist. They were treated like an old aunt who you sit at the far side of the table on Thanksgiving. But nobody should treat an old aunt that way because we love these books and we really believed in them. And the fact that they were in public domain was not itself enough to ensure that they could be exposed to a new generation. But we took them, we reset them, we redesigned them, we gave them beautiful covers, reasonably inexpensive prices. And 
to our surprise, there was a whole new crop of readers just waiting to find the editions of these books that people have heard of but have never necessarily found their way to, like Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, like uh, The Game of Life and How to Play It by Florence Scobell Shin, like a book called The Science of Getting Rich by Wallace D. Waddles. There was just an outpouring of interest in these books commercially once we could make them newly available in an attractive way. And um, the I, I know that Hill, who I, I believe published in '37, and right. uh, Florence Scovel Shin in uh, 25, 25, 1925, yeah. uh, that is, um, that they would have been. Did they really fall off in from? They, they came back every 10 or 15 years, or is there a recent resurgence on these? There is a recent resurgence, and uh, it, it's interesting. They never fully went away, and everything is, is cyclical, obviously. Um, they were always sort of there. Uh, they were You could find them in the bookstores. You could find them spine out, tucked into a personal finance section or a self-help section. And they sold in a, a steady trickle, but not a, a mighty onrush. Mm-hmm. And... I think there was a great renewal of interest in some of these ideas when the book and the movie The Secret came out a couple of years ago. People were very affected by that. They were very touched by it. Lots of people like to make fun of that movie, but the truth is it exposed an enormous audience of everyday people to the idea that the mind may be causative in some way. Remind me of the secret, because I don't don't remember. Oh, well, the the secret was just this blockbuster movie and book from a couple of years ago that basically repackaged the power of positive thinking. It was the power of positive thinking for the present generation. And people were very touched by it. It was on Oprah. The book was on the New York Times bestseller list for uh, years. still there, as a matter of fact. Written by? Written by Rhonda Byrne and some folks who worked with her. She's she's from Australia uh-huh. and probably um, experienced a great benefit being from Australia because she wasn't living in New York or L.A. where everybody would tell her, well, Rhonda, all this stuff has been done already. These ideas, you know, go back to Napoleon Hill, 1937, back to Florence Scovel Shin, 1925. She wasn't bothered with any of that background noise, and she carried forward her project, The Secret. It was very successful, and it reignited... Uh, interest in a very widespread way in what is called the power of positive thinking. It, it aroused people to start looking into this question of whether motivational thinking, the powers of the mind, could somehow outpicture in prosperity or external events. So the folks that we're publishing really were the software, in a sense, for what was happening in that movie. These were the founders, the pioneers of this practical spirituality. So that really ignited the, the spark. That's, that's where the new interest in, in many of these people uh, began. And may have dovetailed with the not only the economy, which I think now has led to new life thinking of what all of us have gone through, now that the, yes. as they call it, green shoots are showing up again. Mm-hmm. Um, have you found that in the sales of these kinds of books? We have have been continually surprised by the sales of these books. When we put our new edition of Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich out in 2005, we did it on a lark. We had no particular expectation that this book was going to take off again. Uh, It was just a piece of practical self-help literature that we here at Tartar Penguin loved ourselves. Uh, We didn't put it out with any bounding expectations, and suddenly it started to sell and sell and sell. And we realized very quickly that there was a great hunger out there for practical, useful, motivational ideas, and that 
the way these ideas were formulated among the founders, among the early folks who produced this literature way back in the early 20th century, remain the most powerful way. Titles like Think and Grow Rich, Public Speaking for Success, The Science of Getting Rich, uh, The Game of Life and How to Play It, they, they, they aroused people's curiosity. We're not a cynical society. We have cynics among us, but there are a lot of idealists among us as well. And many of these folks started saying, I just want to know what's in there. I'm not investing my home and my life in this book. I'm investing an evening in it. I just want to know what's in there. And uh, a lot of people apparently think that way, and they like what they found, because we have been selling a great, great many of these books, and we didn't start out with that expectation. Well, and that's what brought me, frankly, to you, because I was myself had not known of Napoleon Hill. Somewhat embarrassingly, uh, when I heard afterwards about how many other people uh, knew of Napoleon Hill. But you're correct. Um, when the average reader hears of it, hears of it from enough people, they pick it up. They can pick it up in the middle yeah. and, and recognize that, um, as Peter Allen used to saying, everything old is new again. Right. And it, has that, it, has, it stands that test of time. Yes. We're doing, this is a little bit off the subject, but it, it, we're uh, it, talking to an author um, about um, a book uh, quite recently about Keynes and, and um, what uh, Keynesian and what, what Kane, how Keynes got it wrong mm -hmm. in, in Hunter Lewis's opinion. He was just on McLaughlin at work uh, a couple of uh, last month. And one of the things that he pointed out, and I think that this is, and I, I'm, I'm going to ask you about Florence Scovel's Shin and the Game of Life and, and the uh, milieu in which it was written, but he pointed out that part of what Keynes was reacting to uh, was the Victorian notion that debt was bad. Mm -hmm. And so part of his economic theory was different from what had immediately preceded um, at the time, which was uh, a, a rejection of that Victorian notion and built the current economy on the fact that consumerism and debt ain't such a bad thing. Mm -hmm. And you may have to you may have to employ it in order to have a, a vibrant economy as we know it today. Mm -hmm. uh, how would you position um, The Game of Life, written in, in 1925, and, and what, what made her... She self-published at the she time. She self-published. Couldn't find a publisher. Could not find a publisher. Couldn't find a Mitch Horowitz. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and um, and, and what, what made it... What allowed it at that time for a book like this to resonate? Well, Shin was part of a very American impulse that was running through the society at the time, and I think still exists, which was this idea that a person who wasn't formally educated, who had no particular expertise uh, and, and, and certainly no clerical designation in the field of religion, Florence Shin, for that matter, was an illustrator. She was an illustrator of children's books. She was married to an Impressionist artist. She was a bit on the avant-garde side but not someone who would be regarded as uh, uniquely educated or qualified to hold forth on spiritual questions. She was completely undaunted by that. And through the experience of her own life and through some of the metaphysical literature that she was reading in the 19-teens and the 1920s, she came around to this theology. She came around to this point of view that the powers of the mind are in harmony with the creative powers of the universe, what is called God, and that what a man thinks will somehow outpicture, sometimes in very subtle ways, in his life, in his happiness, in his workplace, in his home. And 
she didn't isolate herself and withdraw to some sort of a personal cave where she just tested these ideas out within the chamber of her own head. She congregated with people. She circulated among people. There was a big network of metaphysical churches and all kinds of inspirational lectures that were given at Carnegie Hall, Steinway Hall, other places all over New York City. People were interested in practical spiritual ideas. She tested these things out among people. She felt there was a sense of receptivity. And there was something about Shin that was very special, and you find it among a lot of these New Age and self-help pioneers. She was a great communicator. She knew how to reach people with what could seem a very ethereal message in a very, very practical way. And she won over a lot of people. So she was part of a real bounding culture in America where people felt, and I think this still exists, that they could arrive at a theological idea themselves, test it out among people. They did it with a great deal of idealism, a great deal of moxie. And if they, if they had competence, if they had communication skills, if they knew how to tell a story, they could find an audience. Shin succeeded in finding an audience. And the truth is, this 1925 book, The Game of Life, for which she couldn't find a publisher, has never gone out of print. It's become a part of the American scene. And I noticed in, uh, stylistically that she anchors philosophy in always small vignettes. Yes. There's always a story. There's always somebody she met, somebody who prayed for, mo <laughs> prayed for yep. money or needed 500 bucks, and she weaves you through in a couple of paragraphs, and yes. the 500 bucks arrives. She was a genius at seizing upon just a very ordinary story from daily life, not being embarrassed to highlight the predicament of an individual who might have wanted something that to us might seem very small, very ordinary, and she could hone in on the experience of one individual in whom the reader could see him or herself and say, look, this is how the power of motivational thinking, uh, this is how the power of causative thinking worked in this person's life. Her vignettes were all from very ordinary life. That was, that was part of her genius. Do you think that it came, um, the people focus on these kinds of books more in difficult times where they become introspective and, and, and more cautious and, and thoughtful? Absolutely. Perhaps. There's no question. Uh, d difficult times bring out the searcher in all of us. There is absolutely no question. And I think people who are involved with religious congregations or spiritual publishing from any walk of life uh, would say the same thing. During the Great Depression, uh, which, which followed the publication of Shin's book by several years, people were absolutely hungering for, demanding practical answers and guidance and inspiration. And very frequently, mainstream pulpits were caught unawares because religion up until that time in America remained very much a salvational force. That was the, that was the point. Um, and it, it began to transform in the early decades of the 20th century into not just a not only, I should say, not only a salvational force, but a healing force as well, a place where people felt they could find solutions and answers and help to the problems of daily life. And Shin was the kind of person, although she wasn't connected uh, with any of the mainline congregations, she was the kind of person whose work pushed the mainline congregations eventually into responding uh, to the, the healing needs, the therapeutic needs that congregants wanted and demanded from religion. So she and her contemporaries were really pioneers in that sense in helping to uh, influence mainline religion as well. And while this, uh, the McLaughlin at work has a tendency to to uh, view the world through the, the prism of the business and the workplace. Yeah. That is where we look at it. 
Um, certainly Napoleon Hill was very much involved in the workplace. And, and most of her examples, even though this is a self-help book, yeah. uh, there are 8 to 11, I think there are something like 8 to 11,000 business book titles that come out every year. Mm. Um, and, <laughs> and in some respect, this self-help was sort of a work-life balance book. It sort of identified what you had to do, and that there was something more than merely the workplace that, that w- and wealth that yes. was salvation. Yes. It's interesting. People approach a book like Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich, and to some people the title alone is a turnoff because mm-hmm. it seems shallow, it seems limited, it seems materialistic. But readers who, who have that attitude would be surprised if they spent just an afternoon, just an evening with the Napoleon Hill chapter. There is a kind of do-unto-others ethics that permeates it. There's a very simple and I think in some ways very alluring golden rule ethics that permeates Napoleon Hill. It ain't the art of war. It ain't the prince by Machiavelli. It's Mm -hmm. not about getting one over on the guy in the next office. There's a subtler, gentler, more interesting approach to life that these people had. They were unembarrassed to make materialist claims. They were unembarrassed to talk about... uh, the, the, the desire of getting rich, of earning more, of being prosperous, but they really did counterbalance it with what I think was a very simple and truthful and moving religious ethic. Yes, and, and, and very often um, it, it was loosely described around a godhead. Um, and, and as you pointed out, I, I'll use the word uniquely, but almost uniquely American. It really was. It really was. You know... Um, arguably the first self-help book came out of Britain in the mid-19th century. It was called Self-Help by a writer named Samuel Smiles. Um, but the, the, the literature that really sought to apply ethical and religious and philosophical ideas to bettering one's outer life, that was American. That was coming out of transcendentalism to a certain extent. Ralph Waldo Emerson started giving a lecture in this country called Success in 1859, and everyone who hasn't availed themselves of that lecture really ought to read it. In that lecture, and and Emerson did not put up with magical thinking or with people who had a a myopic view of life or or who are always sort of changing their minds about religious ideas, but he did conclude in that lecture, which he later published as an essay, that life favors enthusiasm, Mm. that the nature of our thoughts, the way that we go about dealing with people in our places of commerce, our places of work, our places of worship, really would outpicture in a definitive way in our lives. And again, he was unembarrassed to eventually title this essay, Success. He said exactly what he meant, and he talked about how the principle of, of enthusiasm figures into success. A whole generation of what could be called uh, self-help writers, um, practical spiritual writers, uh, branched off from that great tree. And you had uh, uh, all kinds of different movements floating around this country in the mid-19th century. The mental healing movement, you had people interested in all these different experimental religious ideas. By the end of the century and by the dawn of the 20th century, these ideas really shaped into what we would recognize today as practical self-help, practical spirituality, some might call it uh, new age, Uh, But this idea that religion could provide practical answers was a light that went shining out chiefly from the United States. And as you uh, were speaking, and the you is Mitch Horowitz, and Mitch is the editor-in-chief of the uh, Tarsher Penguin imprint and is the 
I guess, one of the most responsible people for bringing this book out and others like it, and we're going to uh, broaden that a little bit. But it's, it, I, I did read particularly um, this book, The Game of Life, is a compendium of three yes. or four of her books. So yes. the, the Game of Life itself is the first portion of it. Right, that was her crowning work. And yeah. I was intrigued, um, as you spoke, because it, it uh, reminded me of what I had read in the book, that towards the very end, literally her last page, she she says, and I quote, and the she is Florence Scovel Shin, uh, and I quote, man should make an art of thinking. And interesting that then think and grow rich um, mm -hmm. would be, uh, would, would be come out some 12 years later, but obviously he was of the same mindset. And it, it's certain, certain of a reflection, and I'll, and I'll quote the final paragraph of her book, May each reader be now freed from that thing which has held him in bondage through the ages, standing between him and his own, and, quote, know the truth which makes him free, and quote, free to fulfill his destiny to bring into manifestation the divine design of his life, health, wealth, love, and perfect self-expression. Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. It was remarkable introspection. Yes. That these people... F uh, presented, and then that was embraced. Yes. And you know, that phrase you just read, perfect self-expression, is very interesting. For that to be used in 1925 must have sounded very far out to people. You know, today that's a phrase with which we're comfortable with. We understand it, self-expression. We believe there's a difference between a career and just a job. We understand that if, a, if an individual loves what he or she does, they will do it better and they will be more successful at it. These were very far out and alien notions <laughs> in the 1920s. Yeah. I mean, we were still really uh, in many respects, an agrarian society. The great cities were being built, industry, railroads were spreading out across America. I mean, the, the, the frontier had closed only a generation, a generation and a half earlier. Folks were leaving farms <clears throat> to work in large companies. And I think for many people, they struggled to find their way. They struggled to figure out what is expected of me in a workplace. How am I supposed to act towards my boss? What am I supposed to do when I'm given a task that I don't understand? Uh, how am I supposed to learn how to use all these new machines, you know, typewriters and, 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 and carbon pads and such? And the car. And the car. The car, the how motorized buggy. How does that work? <laughs> <clears throat> and the idea of, of a writer like Shin coming along and talking to people about reaching for some kind of perfect self-expression, very remarkable, very avant-garde. You know, the, 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 so much of our language that we use today very comfortably uh, comes from writers like Shin, who believed that a person could find meaning in his or her work. Now, would, would something like this, I know it was self-published, <clears throat> what role did, um, in, in, in this sort of, in the, in the book world or the magazine world, and you mentioned uh, Emerson um, uh, printed his uh, lecture up as, as an essay and distributed it, maybe as a pamphlet. Were there magazines that, that launched these people, or, were they, or was the notion of the book that everybody had a book in them and that they would self-publish and the book was the, the, was the medium? That's a wonderful question. Really, the book was the medium. There were some success-oriented magazines out there. There were motivational thinking magazines. There were magazines that came out of what was called the New Thought Movement. That was the religious movement that Shin was part of. There was a magazine called Mind. There was another magazine called Success. So they were out there, but chiefly, 
the great vast magazines in America, they might run articles of advice, they might run articles about this movement, but this was really almost a, 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 a literary movement. The printed book and the printed pamphlet was the way that these ideas spread across America. They were advertised in magazines, they could be bought through mail order, you could find them uh, at, at bookstores that were located within department stores. There weren't that many bookstores in the country at that time. Right. Um, but this was a movement spread by the book and the pamphlet, absolutely. Um, gender? Was there any gender issue with the author? Wonderful. Another just terrific question. It was interesting. You had these currents of alternative spirituality bubbling up in America. And <clears throat> among the things they accomplished were that they gave women uh, the first opportunity, really, in modern life to serve as religious leaders, at least of a sort. You had the spiritualist movement in this country bubbling up in the mid-19th century. Most spirit mediums were women. We ought not underestimate that. We ought not walk past that and just see it as an oddity. It actually helped build the suffragette movement. The mental and, and they, they probably didn't have the bully pulpit as we know it today. They, right. They, they, didn't, they, would, they didn't walk up the steps and talk to the congregation. They, right. And, and, you know, this was a time when a woman even couldn't even check into a hotel room by herself. And suddenly women started slowly to get looked at as civic and religious leaders coming out of some of these alternative spiritual movements. The Christian Science Movement was founded by Mary Baker Eddy. Many of her deputies were women. So the New Thought Movement also represented an opening for women. In that sense, you had people like Shin and some other publishers and writers who were notably women, and uh, this cracked open a door for them. And could could one tell whether there was any bias um, on the on the readership? Did they accept something that was written by a woman as as easily as a man under those circumstances? Partly because they didn't have to see them. Remarkably little bias, actually. You know, Mary Baker Eddy's congregation. It, it grew from a similar branch uh, uh, as, as the New Thought Movement did, although it distanced, it distanced itself. Her gender never um, presented a problem. Uh, people looked at her as a leader, a visionary. They flocked to her. The whole thing worked. So notably, there was actually little friction. Uh, without taking this far from where we are talking about in the, in the, uh, the time of Florence Goebel Shin in 1925 and Napoleon Hill in 37. You're an author yourself. Yes. Tell us about your book. Oh, I have a new book out called Occult America, The Secret History of How Mysticism Shaped Our Nation. And in that book, I write a lot about how so many of our self-help movements, our therapeutic spiritual movements, really grew out of these arcane and esoteric American subcultures. Well, let, me, let me just stop you please. to say that the, the, the title is Occult, not a... Uh, Cult that's America. right. I just want Occult to make America sure with people an o, may look that's it up right. in the wrong. That's right. Look it up in the wrong place. <laughs> Occult America, meaning a secret spirituality or an obscure spirituality. America was always a great laboratory for religious experiment. It still is, and this really goes back to the colonial days. America was regarded as a safe harbor for people with radical religious ideas. In the mid 1600s, people were fleeing the Thirty Years' War in Europe. They were fleeing areas of Central Europe where there was a lot of religious persecution, and they were conglomerating around Philadelphia, in the New York area, in the New England area. They were founding these unusual congregations and mystical communities, like the Shakers is a terrific example, and they were succeeding. They managed to start up their communities and, and promulgate their beliefs with relatively little harassment. From the pre-constitutional days, the pre-republic days, America was seen as a safe harbor for people with alternative spiritual ideas. So Shin, you know, was somebody who belonged to that lineage, and that lineage still exists today. All kinds of new religions flourished in America, the Mormon faith, 
Seventh-day Adventists, Christian scientists, what we call the New Age today. So my book, Occult America, is really about the roots of all that. And um, you may you either allude to or make reference to the people like Shen yeah. and Hill in, the, in your book. Yeah. A cha- there, there's a chapter in my book called The Science of Right Thinking, and that was one of the names for this motivational thinking philosophy in the early 20th century. And I talk about how many of these motivational thinkers, uh, Dale Carnegie and Napoleon Hill among them, they were deeply imbibing some of this mystical literature, and they were geniuses of communication, and they repackaged it to a very broad American public. The, uh, it reminds me when I, how, if you will, encyclopedic the, if one takes the four books that are contained in the Game of Life, um, it's a Game of Life and How to Play It, Your Word is Your Wand, The Secret Door to Success and the Power of the Spoken Word. Yeah. Uh, it, it sort of covers everything. Uh, and, 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 maybe, and maybe it goes to um, something of what modern communication is about. Yes. And in this case, as I am speaking with you, much like your voice may come through to people who know you in occult America. Uh, but th- there is that element of communication that the spoken word in which she refers to. Yes. Uh, all of the stories are usually stories about interaction and, and real communication between people. Right. That the, the notion here of the book or the audio and, and the ability to communicate is all wrapped up in, 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 in sort of the collection of her, the power of the spoken word That's right. as opposed That's to true. the power of the, of the pen. Right. Right. You know, Shin and her contemporaries, they, they were geniuses at communication. They understood how to reach people in just this intrinsic way. That was their great gift. They could take their ideas, and instead of taking them in some ethereal or mystical direction, they would just take them next door. They would find a story of the farmer next door who needed to fix the, the, the rotary blade on his, on his tractor and how they helped him through the power of motivational thinking. And, you know, it, it, it just broke through the ice of people's resistances and and they could see themselves in these stories and I um, among other things I'm a a publisher of new age books a publisher of metaphysical books and I'm always telling my colleagues in this industry do not be embarrassed to take a leaf from the past the greatness of Shin and her contemporaries was first of all they were sincere they absolutely believed their ideas and there's an idealism that I think comes through on almost every page and they were willing to make a brash promise to the reader. They were willing to say, think and grow rich. Uh, They were willing to say, as Napoleon Hill did, how to win friends, uh, as Dale Carnegie did, how to win friends and influence people. They were willing to say the game of life and how to play it. They weren't afraid of making a bold, brash claim so long as they were sincere and believed it and could back it up with very, very practical stories from daily life. Uh, That that was part of their genius. People who work in publishing, uh, advertisers, people who write in in whatever dimension of life could learn something about communication from studying the work of these people. Yeah. And her opening line, having quoted the the end of the book, her opening line in, in of the game of life, chapter one, the game, and I quote, most people consider life a battle but it is not a battle, it is a game. Mm -hmm. That puts it in a whole different realm when you consider life a game. Right, right. But it wasn't game the way we think of it today in gaming the system. There wasn't that. It was was a purity of the game that everybody had to live through. Right, and and Shin believed there were certain principles of life that guaranteed success. Uh, Enthusiasm, positive thought, 
uh, dealing justly and fairly with one's neighbor, and a, a number of other things as well. And that if you could discover and master these principles, uh, you could succeed. And the interesting thing is, they all were really very much in line with Christian ethics, um, with, 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 with golden rule ethics, with some of the great universal ideas that you find stretching back into scripture and the early ethical philosophies. Uh, her methods may have seemed far out. Her language may have seemed magical. Her claims may have seemed exaggerated. But I can assure you, nothing bad would ever happen in a household or a workplace because somebody got turned on to Florence Scoville Shin. These were core Judeo-Christian ethics packaged in a very, very practical way. And to put it in the perspective of a Tarcher Penguin, they still sell. They still sell. There is a public out there for these books, and uh, we've been delighted to discover that. Mitch Horowitz, the editor-in-chief of Tarcher Penguin and the person who put together, among others, The Game of Life and How to Play It by Florence Scovelshin. Thanks for your time and your explanations this afternoon. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. And now, as we move on to part two of our interviews today, working for you isn't working for me, the ultimate guide to managing your boss with Catherine Crowley and Kathy Elster. Let me remind you of our good sponsors, the fine folks at Classroom 24-7. If you need web-enhanced learning, particularly with training certification, we strongly recommend that you give Classroom 24-7 your attention they can do it for you they can make it happen online and as certified strangely enough today working for you isn't working for me the ultimate guide to managing your boss my guests are Catherine Crowley and Kathy Elster who are authors also of the previous work along the same lines working with you is killing me the title caught a lot of people by surprise and it was a runaway hit. Now they have their new book, Working For You Isn't, in a special color, Working For Me. It's a book about bosses. Uh, Catherine Crowley, how did this book come to be? Actually, this book came to be via the earlier book because we traveled all over the country. We went to many events. We gave lectures. We gave workshops, all-day seminars. And after every single event someone would quietly, cautiously approach Kathy or myself and say, this is great material, but you don't know what I'm dealing with. And it always had to do with a boss or some kind of major pivotal authority figure. So we realized we had to cover it in depth. And a lot of bosses would approach us and say, uh, I think I'm the problem. So many bosses out there were aware, and we weren't addressing it in working with you is killing me. So uh, it just seemed like the right opportunity to now address bad bosses. Um, I also want to say that we uh, made it wider than that. It's about authority. So it's not just about your bosses. It could be your board of directors. It could be um, a, a difficult client. Um, so it's just the issue of authority. And um, do you get into relationships like families? Is, is that applicable here, e either by analogy or in fact? Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, we never say that in the book because it does hang in the business shelf. Um, sure. But all, all of our work applies at home as well as it in the office. I can imagine there'll be homes who have read this book that said, this really isn't working for me. Yeah. <laughs> working with you, my spouse, of many years is not working for me. Well, when you think about it, your first authority figures are 
at home in right. the household, right? And they may they could be anything from a parent to a grandparent to even an older sibling that you're going to have a certain reaction to that you learn a certain way of coping with and that you may have some, let's say, residue regarding that you're going to bring with you to the workplace. Yeah, you know, also a lot of your relationship to authority began, yes, in your home with your parents and your grandparents, but it also started in school with your school teachers, your religious leaders. You know, we have an automatic reaction when we go to the office with our boss. We bring all this baggage to it, and a lot of times it comes right from other adults that we had in our earlier lifetime, not just our parents. That was Kathy Elster speaking. So we identify uh, voices here, and we'll have uh, hopefully be able to uh, post pictures at the same time so people will know with whom we're speaking. A couple of things that come to mind. Uh, one is in the time frame in which this is addressed, uh, and I know it's in the book, but I want to like you to explain it in your own words. Um, both the gender issue, working both ways, uh, and um, age. What, is, what have you noticed when you flash forward to now, in this century? Have bosses changed? It's just much more complicated right now. Uh, the diversity in the workplace, the gender issue, the age issue, those are big. Uh, it's also multicultural. It's just a very different world that we're dealing in right now. Um, so have bosses changed? They have less experience now and they have with it with the issues um and they have less training companies are not training their managers the way they used to yeah and i'd say we are also missing a model of what the ideal boss is today you know what what are the behaviors that constitute a really solid leader how do i handle a difficult employee most managers have very few tools for how to handle those things. And pre-tech boom, when there was more hierarchical structure within corporations, there was also more instruction regarding this is how you handle someone who reports to you, and this is how you handle someone who you report to. Now, because we're here in New York, is, um, is it different, uh, speaking to Richard Florida, making his comment about it's important where you work and who's your city, is it different in the cities? Is there, is there a country boss and a city boss? You know, I, I have to be honest, as we travel around the country, it's no better anywhere. Um, and no worse. I don't, yeah, exactly. I don't, we could be in any city, um, it's the same. People are experiencing the same everywhere. When you, uh, yeah, what I was going to say is I think the thing that's actually universal is goes to the generational thing that you were speaking to. That, okay that the, the, the generations are having a hard time working together and that many a senior worker or say mature worker now is reporting to a boss who may be half that individual's age. And with that junior boss, it's one of the ones we mentioned in the book, comes a technological savvy, but a lack of experience. And also just a different ethic, a different work ethic, a different way of approaching the workplace. And you can see that in X, Y. Explain that. Well, what the more mature workers will say is that the younger employees have a, a much higher sense of entitlement, and they actually have a lot more work-life balance. There's plenty they, they will not do, or they make sure to go home and spend time with their kids, or, you know, they take their days off. Whereas the boomers tend to be more, you know, get down in there and give it your best shot and do what it takes to get the job done. And for the, for the younger worker, that also seems like, you know, a little bit of overkill and a little bit of a martyr approach to the workplace. 
you know, the baby boomers brought their children up to expect that the economy was going to continue to grow. Mm -hmm. And they also brought them up to speak up for themselves, stand up for yourself, take your time off, do, you know, take care of yourself. So they're somewhat, you know, and now they're looking at their children in the workplace and wondering, right. uh, what did we do wrong here? But I, there's an element we haven't hit on, which is I think communication is a big issue. Yeah. You know, when I first came into the workplace, it was... Um, early 70s, late 60s, and we only had one form of communication, and it was called a memo, and everybody got it, and it was very easy. You know, everything came that way. We also had some meetings, but if you work for a large company, which I did, you know, it came in the form of memos. Um, right, i.e., did you get the memo? Right, did you get the memo? <laughs> so, you know, but everybody got was communicated by the same way. We have such a different uh, system of communication now where you know, whether it's email, text, um, you know, you work uh, um, remotely, there's so many, so much uh, room for miscommunication mm -hmm. that I think bosses, um, that, that's where they blow it a lot. They blow it in the lack of communication or too much communication. And that's where we see breakdown, a, a big breakdown. The family structure has changed. I mean, your point about, um, your point about uh, different communication but fathers, long my thought, fathers are much different today mm -hmm. than how their fathers raised them. And I think that that has bled into the workforce big time. Well, exactly. And, you know, I heard somebody on, on the news the other day talking about why would I hire a woman because she's, you know, going to have a young woman. She's going to want to have a child in a couple of years and leave. And I thought, but wait a minute, men are the same thing. The Family Leave Act, men can leave and men are leaving now to bring up their child. So it, it you know, I, I think there's a big difference in that men now want the same um, kind of flexibility talking about the younger generations that women have always wanted and that changes the workplace a lot speaking with Catherine Crowley and Kathy Elster the last voice was Kathy Elster who have written working for you isn't working for me the ultimate guide to managing your boss and Paul McLaughlin speaking with them is this a book for bosses we think it is, um, <laughs> very much. We think bosses really should read this. We think they should identify their behaviors. You know, we make a distinction in the book between a bad boss and a bad boss behavior. So you could be a really good boss, but you have one behavior. Like you could get along with your staff very well and you're very supportive, but maybe you're a little spineless and you're not very good at going to bat for raises and promotions. It's interesting for you to read the book and see how that plays out and how that really hurts the people below you and see the solutions we give. Uh, I think it would change the way you work. We also have a boss baggage assessment, a 60 question assessment. Say that a little slower for those who may not have caught that. Well, I say it so often that I probably run into <laughs> well, it. You should. The boss baggage assessment uh -huh. where um, you would take that assessment and understand what you bring to the relationship as an employee. So you find out what your expectations of your boss are, what your needs are, and what your fears are. And we think every boss should give it to a new hire. They should understand when they're hiring somebody what they expect, what they need, and what their fears are. Because that's a real indication whether that person's going to work out for you as the boss. Maybe I could ask uh, Catherine Crowley to, to give us a sense of when somebody picks up the book, how can they approach this? 
how do they approach the solutions that yeah. you're offering? Well, actually, we've designed it that you can go, that you've, all you have to do is you first look up the boss behaviors that you're dealing with with your boss, and then you can go directly to uh, your boss baggage assessment. You can take an assessment, and then you can take the boss behaviors you're dealing with and your approach to authority, your personality profile that you come up with, and run those through our four-step program to see how to manage the relationship. So for example, let's say I figure out that I'm working for a uh, sacred cow boss. That's the person who does very little but is in a high position. And I find out that I, I take the assessment, I find out I'm a challenger. I'm someone who likes to push the envelope, insert fresh ideas, and break the rules. If I really understand the nature of who that boss is and what my personality is, I can manage the relationship by going outside of it to get the attention, to shout out my ideas, to rattle the rafters, you know, work with an association, work on a conference. And then within the relationship, I can do my very best, so it's hard for a challenger, to be uh, cooperative and to actually work with the sacred cow in a way that doesn't threaten this individual's sense of authority. That takes an awful lot of self-awareness. It does, and we're asking our readers to slowly but surely do that, do a lot of work. <laughs> but there's a very high payoff, Paul, and that's the thing that we've heard from everyone. Even if you're not ready to take steps, once you really identify the boss that you're working with and what they are triggering in you, which is your boss baggage, there's immediate relief that comes just with that awareness, and then gradually you can take steps to really improve the relationship. The, um, you, I, you did say the four steps. They conveniently start with Ds. <laughs> <laughs> I know that. Uh, um, maybe you could just take us through that structure. Uh, sure. Because it's a, it's a critical, like, critical part of the book. The, I'll start with the first you two. You split, up the, you split up the Ds. Yeah. The first is detect, and that is detecting the kind of boss that you're working with, the state you are in the relationship, what stage you're in, and what your coping mechanisms are. The second step is to detach, and by this we mean to gain some emotional distance from the relationship. And what we really encourage is that you actually do the opposite of digging in there, is you take actions to feel a sense of personal power. So we ask you to restore your energy through physical exercise, meditation, something like that. Uh, repair your emotional state, circulate. Don't isolate. We give many examples of how to do that for yourself. And rebuild your confidence. Do simple things like making a list of your successes every day or find an important cause you really like and contribute your talents. So it's detect, detach, and then we go to... And then let me just, uh, let me just ask on detach uh, two, two questions. One is it, it detach has a certain work-life balance associated with it. Yes. So that if you focus in on your boss's problems and your problems you probably will end up with the issue joined and you'll never have correct a, a, pers a better perspective for lack of a better way to put it that's right normally when someone's behavior really bothers us the truth is that they hold us hostage and what we're saying is free yourself from that imprisonment take actions where you re reconnect with yourself regain your sense of personal power and then you can return to the relationship and work on it effectively. Detect and detach. 
And, you know, just by detecting and detaching, there should be tremendous relief. And I would congratulate anyone who, who gets <laughs> themselves correct. really to that. The next step, depersonalizing, which is my personal favorite, because it's really about not taking the other person's behavior personally. I mean, this is such a beautiful lesson in life. Stop taking everything personally. It's not about you. It's about them. And it feels very personal at work when your boss yells at you or maybe micromanages you, is very critical of everything you do. But the truth is, they're going to do that whether you're there or not. They did it to the people before you. They're going to do it to the people after you. It's not about you. It's their problem. And your reaction to it matters. You don't want to take it personally. Um, so this is, it's very, very powerful to be able to get yourself to stop taking people's behavior personally, but you do have to do the first two steps in order to be able to get to number three, depersonalizing. And then number four, um, we really lay out concrete steps to number four, which is called deal, how to deal, how to take back your power. Um, and, and again, you've really got to go through the first three to be able to get there, to be able to see it from a higher place that, um, you know, and so instead of doing what intuitively you want to do, which is maybe push a bookshelf over on your boss or, you know, get even, get fair, you know, we say sometimes it's best to even do a little bit of sucking up, giving them the credit, even though they're not do it, because that's going to further your career. Hmm. Doesn't always sound intuitive, but it actually works. How much of the current sort of brain science about how we really, how we really are, as opposed to just the manifestations of we, how we are? Well, in terms of this book, I would say it is more experiential and what we have discovered in working with people year after year after year and through many different scenarios. But we do also take into consideration, that's part of the boss baggage profile, the different ways that people relate to authority and even, you know, in the, in the auditory, visual, kinesthetic ways, all those different ways that we respond to the behaviors around us. And, there, and you mentioned the gender issue, which is another thing that I find really fascinating. We don't go down that road of specifying, well, in fact, women have 40% more connective tissue to their left and right lobes, and therefore they have also more feeling thought, less rational or compartmentalized, and that makes for different interactions. We don't go down that road, but we're aware in the solutions that we offer that these things are in, in process, in operation for the reader and for those who are being managed. Yeah, you know, we hit on um, something that I think uh, behavior in the deal part, uh, which is sort of habitual, um, and that's what happens to us. We, we get into these automatic reactions and automatic behaviors. Um, so in the deal, we, I'm going back to that, we address um, fears, which, you know, a lot of us are operating automatically on our fears. And well, I think there's a lot of fear in the workplace absolutely now. Absolutely there a, is. A, a, a yeah. New fears. and And... But and now even, we might even call them mature fears. Right. <laughs> so we've been through the, the acute fear, the emergency room fear of last year, and now we're into a, a new phase of fear. So we, we get into that, and um, what we explain about your fears is that they're, in a way, self-fulfilling prophecies that, um, I'll give you an example. If you're somebody who is afraid of not being heard, and there's many people out there that have this, you have a tendency to repeat yourself over and over again to the boss because you're afraid you're not being heard. Ultimately, what happens? The boss stops listening, and then your fear is realized. 
So we go through many, many fears and show you how to, you know, first of all, be aware of them, what your fears are. And we mm -hmm. ha and we all bring them. Mine is, I, I have a, a tremendous fear of being held back. It's an issue with authority because authority always wants to hold you back. So what happens to me if somebody um, cuts me out of a meeting or doesn't send me an email that I should have gotten, my fear just automatically comes up and I become very aggressive. I try to insert myself. And what do people do? Push me away. So it's realized, but... And, and then that allowed you to write the book. Well, you know what? I've always been aware of this, but in writing this book, I'm so aware of it now. I'm so aware of when that fear begins to bubble up that I have a lot more control over it now. And I see how it's held me back. It's actually held me back all of these years. And it's, it's, it's been a tremendous journey for both of us to really... We learned a lot about ourselves in writing this book. Um, but the fears, I think that's something that could really help a lot of people. Well, and, and it raises one question in, in, in the title, and I don't, I don't pick on titles because obviously your title's been very successful for you in the past. But this is, um, I would assume that this is a book that everybody should get before they get into trouble, as opposed to only when you realize that you and your boss aren't getting along. I mean, it, it enlarges the audience. Well, but, I would, the, but I would assume that some of some of this is associated. There's an acute problem. Where do I go if I'm not getting along with my boss? And then you can go to working for you isn't working for me, but Catherine Crowley and Kathy Elster, and then that works. But it, these kinds of um, uh, revelations about how we are in the workplace come from your experience. And uh, while it's not fair to say people are typecast, they certainly bosses fall into buckets. <laughs> so you got to. Yes. A bucket of bosses and and by going through the book you can identify that and maybe do something about your behavior so that you don't reach the point that this isn't working for me i think it's a really good point and what's true is that the title working for you isn't working for me came from the fact that we have heard almost everyone even if you adore your boss there may be something about them that drives you crazy so our hope is that you can identify with that notion even if it's not every day on certain days but to your point, it is, I'll just say from a psychological point of view, it's much better to address a problem before you're in the emergency room. And that's why we have to spend so much time with our reader in that detect and detach. That's really the treatment. You know, that's the part of cooling your system, calming your system down so that you can begin to see your situation from a sober perspective. Because we really do lose our minds or feel crazy in those situations. Also, Catherine and I come from this school of people like to grow. People like to grow on the job and they like to grow personally. And that's what our books are really about. So yes, this one is about bosses and the last one was about, uh, you know, your coworkers touched on bosses a little bit. But the truth is if you want to grow at work, these are skills that will help you in just about any aspect of your work. If you want to be a manager or you maybe don't like your manager, that's what we address, how to really grow from internally rather than, you know, we know there's lots of courses on how to learn how to work, uh, you know, computer programs. There's a lot of technical skills out there, but where really are the emotional skills? Uh, there isn't that much. And that's really been our focus for many years. It is, it, and, and that raises the point of if somebody is re-entering the workplace, as, yeah. as perhaps many women do, um, maybe less so than the, the period just stopped you now with technology and, and being able to communicate from um, off-site, off if you will. But it would, it would occur to me that uh, something like this would be uh, 
a, a, a primer for somebody re-entering re the workplace who perhaps has not had a boss for a little while to realize that when they do come back in, um, they, they should be aware that th these are the kinds of things that they're going to It's almost like a quarterback right. looking at the defense <laughs> and trying to Watching pick, pick the Watching reruns of the game. That's yeah, right. right. It's it, true. It's actually a very good point. And, and one of the things that we're very clear about is that most people want this relationship to work out. You know, we right. want it. We don't want it to fail. And even those who are furious at their boss or, you know, shutting the boss out are feeling that way because they actually wish they could find a solution to the problem. So yes, it would be great for those who are re-entering to take a look and especially to assess themselves and see what is it that I need from the person who I'm working for? You know, what are my expectations, my fears, my needs from a boss, a manager of some kind? Because that could inform then even the way you interview and the kind of situation that you look for that will really help you thrive as you reenter the workforce. Um, you said earlier that you decided not to go down the gender route. It seems to me that women have a certain advantage in the workplace. I just want to know what's the advantage that you see that they have. So we, so we're not answering. You said it seems to me that women have a certain advantage in the perhaps workplace. not as bosses, because uh -huh. I think that there's a setback to that still in in the workplace. People trying to figure it out for the attributes that you talked about. But I think as as employees um, working for somebody, I I do believe that they that women use appropriately all the growth. You talk about growth. Well, what are those? What are those uh, characteristics? And I think that you know. It, men and women being the way, way they are, there are certain things that would um, that make a woman a more appealing uh, employee than a man under certain circumstances. Technology takes uh -huh. it out a, a little bit, so the screen and right. that removes it. But I, but I do believe that, the, that to handle, to read this as a man employee would be different than if you were a woman employee, because I think, I think women do act differently in the workplace following uh, methods and styles that work for them, which are different. I, I actually, I agree with that. I think that women are much more invested in working on relationships. Yes, than very men. well. We're very more relationally succinct. oriented. It's true. And women buy more books than men. And actually, right now, women have more jobs than men. You know, this is we. There's a we both read an article in Foreign Policy magazine that is calling this a man session because uh, so many, the higher percentage of layoffs is happening to men all mm -hmm. across the world. Mm -hmm. So the world of work is changing. And actually, I think one of the points that we want to make is that in order to make it in this new world of work, you're going, whether you're a man or a woman, you are going to need to develop your interpersonal skills. It's just a requirement because the, ba the boundaries are blurred. The ethnicities are changing every day. Who's going to be your boss tomorrow? You don't know. Your your company may be bought up and you're going to have someone new and different to deal with. And that becomes your job. The second job is managing that relationship. I also think that the traditional role of the male in the workplace is changing. I think that there is a feminization going on and that a lot of younger male bosses are very open to relationships and... Um, are looking more at how to get along than the male bosses that I had that, you know, they were much more black and white and there were no emotions in the workplace and nobody cried. And, you know, they, you know, while they were saying there were no emotions in the workplace, that was all 
I witnessed were emotions. So I think we're coming to terms with the fact that people come to work, they want to work, but they're blocked by so many people's behavior. I think this is out on the table now. Um, so, and you know, we don't want to um, become gender specific because I think there's an in inequity here because right now the statistics don't look that good for women 60 percent of bullying is by women bosses and it's 80 percent of that is on other women it doesn't look good but if you look at the bigger picture women have been in the workplace for a shorter period of time Mm -hmm. and the growth has been very fast and i don't know that the training has been there so i want to give them a little bit of a of a break here that you know they weren't trained by their mothers how to be a manager where boys were um, so I, th- that's just my feeling about it. I, I, we're not experts on that. So we, right. we yeah, no, I recognize that. Um, uh, and, and we're, we're coming to a close in our time here. Paul McLaughlin with, uh, Catherine Crowley and Kathy Elster, their book working for you isn't working for me. One of the things, uh, in terms of preparing people for the workplace, business schools and the like, even colleges do not stress this relationship uh, and how important that is to success. What, 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 what's your thoughts on that? They should. Yeah. Yeah, working with you is killing me. It's required reading at right. 16 universities <laughs> and in graduate school. Uh-huh. Uh, we're working on that, this becoming, the second book also becoming required reading. I, I think it is very important, uh, particularly as skills are now transferable. This thought popped up by virtue of the conversation we, we've been having, which I think it's a, it's a fascinating time in the sense that we have so much technology and the technology can trick us into thinking we don't actually have to work out our relationships. And yet on the other side, we are now one administrative assistant may service four or five bosses, just as you mentioned, four or five individuals. Mm. Uh, you, your workforce is in flux. It may be constantly changing, people coming in and out of the workplace. And so we're in this interesting paradox where on the one hand, things can happen instantaneously without human interaction, without apparent human interaction. And on the other hand, that's all we have to manage right now <laughs> are those relationships. Right. And it could be someone in India who's now one of my coworkers who I have to figure out how to work with. So it's a really interesting time and very fruitful time, we believe, for um, using our material and for us to learn more and more how to assist people to navigate this new world of work. Let me ask you a, a final question in terms of the timeline. Somebody gets into trouble um, and they're looking for a solution. Uh, it sounds like this is probably not a quick fix. What, what is your guidance to um, uh, Kathy Elster? What is your guidance to somebody What's the first thing they should do and what will, what are their expectations for the repair? You know, I think there are some things you can do quickly. You can immediately um, take care of yourself, which is really the first thing if you're in a terrible relationship, is you want to make sure you're exercising, you're not isolating, you're not overindulging in alcohol or drugs or any, you know, any kind of behavior uh, to make yourself self-medicating, to make yourself feel better, and actually uh, getting out and getting support, whether it's short-term professional help um, or just maybe an old boss that you got along well with, but so do what's anti-intuitive and try to take care of yourself. That's the immediate. And maybe as a final comment for, uh, for Catherine Crowley, what has happened to the concept of mentor? Uh, in some places, it's actually, it's growing. 
and Michigan State in particular, we uh, we work with the first gentleman of Michigan, the governor's husband, and he's very active in creating mentorship programs and in interviewing people who have created those associations. As a formal practice, it probably needs to grow exponentially right now. And I think actually that's a wonderful way that boomers and more mature workers could be of service to those who are younger than them, which is to advise and support anyone who's entering the workplace. And support for that comes from the book, Working For You Isn't Working For Me, The Ultimate Guide to Managing Your Boss. My time with Katherine Crowley, Kathy Elster, also authors of Working With You Is Killing Me. Ladies, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you Paul. Thank you.